Hello, and welcome to Lasting Values. I'm your host, Brian Blackstone, and this is the monthly sustainability podcast that looks at how you can make actual impact with your investments. Brought to you by Credit Suisse. Shareholder engagement methods have long been used when it comes to, for example, executive pay. But how can companies be persuaded to step up when it comes to sustainability? What is the role of constructive dialogue versus more activist tactics? And do they really work to change a company for the better? To help explore these and other questions, we have Mia Overall, Director of Shareholder Engagement at Rockefeller Capital Management, Leslie Samuelrich, President at Green Century Funds, and Christoph Beal, Active Ownership Analyst on the ESG team at Credit Suisse Asset Management. And we have James Gifford, our Head of Sustainable and Impact Advisory and Thought Leadership, moderating the discussion. Thanks very much, Brian, and I'm delighted to be here to speak to our three esteemed guests. So, Christoph, can you define what is shareholder engagement, shareholder activism, active ownership, proxy voting? What are all these terms? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it, it's, it's really a bit of a jungle of terminology that's flying around here. Um, but maybe if we can group them a little bit. So we have active ownership that that promotes investors to be an active owner or as uh, with a stewardship code in the UK, for example, you would say to be a good steward, to be someone who acts in the best interests of the company and basically helps the company along to uh, long-term success. And how do you use these approaches to make a difference in terms of sustainability? And there I would say you can use engagement and you can use proxy voting, which you would normally have as the two key components of active ownership to help the companies um, to inform the companies. One thing that we, for example, observe is that especially small and medium enterprises don't have ESG teams or don't have the resources to do that research. And here we can play a key role of sharing um, best practice. So turning to you, Mia, it seems pretty widely accepted that companies acting sustainably create not only social value, but a value for shareholders as well. Uh, why aren't all companies catching on? <laughs> That's a good question, but I would say, you know, fear. Fear of change. Change is hard. Um, and who wants to give up their cash cow? Uh, so no, more seriously, I mean, we, we see a lot of companies that are getting their start in today's day and age, that, um, that are positioning themselves as sustainable solutions for the world that, you know, the, the, the future low carbon world that we all wanna live in. And so companies acting sustainably are, you know, in many cases, quite sexy these days. Um, you've got Tesla, for example, um, and then you have had a number of, you know, very high profile IPOs um, over the past year, including, Oatly and Allbirds and Rivian and Didi. Uh, and so if you were starting a company today, you would probably have sustainability be a core part of that. But, um, but many companies that started in eras past have sort of different business models. And that's why you see activist investors or other uh, shareholders having to press them with shareholder resolutions. So most sustainable funds in the industry buy the really good guys. So they buy the best companies in terms of environmental and social performance. 
but you have a different approach. How does it work in terms of engaging and can shareholder engagement really make a difference? Yeah, I think it can. At, at Rockefeller, we do have a different approach. We call it an ESG improvers approach, meaning that we don't invest only in the greenest of the green because frankly, they're already doing great. And so we prefer to identify companies that uh, have demonstrated they're on an improvement trajectory and help accelerate that trajectory, help clean them up, if you will. And I do think that it's helpful. Um, Here's why, as we all know, when the boss puts something on your calendar and says, you know, I'd like to see an update on what progress has been made on this topic by such and such a date, then you sort of get to it uh, more quickly than you might have otherwise. So you have an escalation process with an engagement. You don't jump straight to the aggressive shareholder proposals. Uh, can you explain how that process works? Yeah, we do. So most of our dialogue with companies is what we like to call constructive dialogue. Um, so we start building relationships with the management teams and, and through the dialogue, um, really position ourselves as advisors. So that's what works most of the time. When we find that we need to escalate, um, we'll do so by sending an official letter, clearly articulating the things that we would like um, to see change, why the fact that we're long-term investors, that type of thing. Um, we also at times partner up with other, uh, with other asset managers, or asset owners, uh, and engage collaboratively with companies. And that has so far been effective. And then really the last um, case scenario is the, the the filing or co-filing shareholder resolutions. It's a tool in our toolbox, but we don't use it that often. So Leslie, you're president of Green Century Capital Management, and you've really taken the shareholder activism uh, strategy on board. You've recently filed shareholder proposals on Google Parent Alphabet. Can you tell us more about your strategies and the outcomes that that they've catalyzed? We approach this as an escalation as well, um, but we end up filing more shareholder proposals because companies have not been coming back with enough concrete changes to their policies or practices. So one of the new campaigns that we started this year was around right to repair as a way to reduce electronic waste. And before we filed the proposal that you mentioned, we actually also filed a proposal with Apple. And the long and short of it is that they announced a, a really groundbreaking policy on the eve um, of us advancing the campaign. And so now customers um, and small business owners can repair some of the Apple products. So that is one that we're really proud of um, this past fall. And this year we're focused on food companies and their scope three emissions, actually reducing their scope three emissions, which um, is the majority of emissions for companies like Costco. Costco had refused to do that. So now with this vote, we're hoping that they come back to the table and agree to do that. Um, one of the other issues is around plastic reduction. And so last year we got agreements with Coke and Mattel and those companies are making progress um, on absolute plastic reduction. And Leslie, would you agree with that, that the role of the shareholder resolution at the company AGM really is a, a last resort and a lot of 
uh, successful outcomes can be achieved purely through dialogue with, with companies. Yes, it varies company by company. So sometimes we've had to file a shareholder resolution just to get a dialogue. So it's good that we have that tool because here in the States, I think the companies are not always as willing to sit down with investors and talk with them about changes that they would like to see. But of course, the resolutions are non-binding and you know we're long-term investors. We're not looking to you know, dismantle the company and its policies and practices. And so you just need to know when to apply what tool. And it's both a science, but it's also a craft learned over time. So you've been working on these types of shareholder activist campaigns for many years. Can you honestly say that they are really effective in driving change at corporations? Yes, absolutely. Um, For us, we are always striving to get time-bound concrete policies. So science-based targets for greenhouse gas reductions, absolute plastic reductions, elimination of medically important antibiotics or uh, things like that. I think where shareholder engagement is becoming broader and some firms may not be actually moving corporations to make that much of a difference is when it's really used as a fact-finding engagement to just check in on the company or if it's used to just express your point of view, but not push for it. I think I would also agree with Leslie that these campaigns, they really can have an impact. Um, At Rockefeller, we've launched a handful. In 2020, we launched a campaign on diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, and sent letters to every single company in our main ESG strategy um, with specific expectations that we laid out for them. And one of those things was diversity on the board. And between 2020 and 21, you saw a 13% jump in racial and ethnic diversity on boards of Russell 3000 companies, which is pretty exciting. So just to play devil's advocate, some of the critics of ESG and shareholder engagement say that um, the economy needs to change so dramatically in terms of, for example, transition to a low carbon future, that shareholders are really not incentivized to do what really needs to be done because otherwise they will underperform. How do you resolve that conflict? There are many asset owners, uh, many of which are our clients, who do have environmental social governance priorities alongside returns. But it still has to be consistent with the long-term financial prosperity of the company, right? Otherwise, you'll underperform. It does. And oftentimes, that means transitioning business models, you know, moving away from um, from business models that are no, that won't be a part of the future and towards business models that will be a part of the future. For example, moving away from landfilling towards recycling. Samir, so is, is there any systematic evidence that engagement works and, and has, uh, you know, positive effects on financial performance? Actually, there is. Um, there have been a number of studies uh, done longitudinally Um, to show the link between um, successful engagements and returns. 
Uh, and these, it's important to emphasize the longitudinal nature of these because engagement often takes quite a long time, right? But, but one study in particular um, found as much as an 8% um, cumulative abnormal return for companies where engagements were successful. And so what I think that shows is that wind management teams are responsive to investors um, responsive to dynamics in the market, nimble, willing to make changes, willing to adjust. Uh, I think those companies tend to outperform. I mean, this goes to the point that a lot of shareholder engagement is focused on the business case uh, for engagement. That is, these requests are often actually good ideas and the investor is in effect becoming a free consultant, helping the company be more successful because the investor has a uh, a view across the whole market. And when the company realizes that this is probably a good idea and implements it, uh, it there tends to be at least some evidence of uh, financial outperformance. If the company ignores it, however, uh, it probably, it, it may not have been a good idea from a financial perspective. Yeah, or it could mean that the that the management team is not responsive to investors or that it's, you know, that they're not a really a fantastic management team. So I want to take on this issue which was raised by Tariq Fancy, the former uh, BlackRock executive who was very critical of the ESG space on the basis that uh, shareholder engagement won't ever really change the company sufficiently um, because uh, that's really the role for regulation. Leslie, what's your view on, on that? And, you know, is, is shareholder engagement and activism actually a distraction uh, from the really hard work of, of actually um, putting in place regulation? I think that it could be a distraction only in the case of companies whose core businesses are unsustainable like the fossil fuel companies. So I we have decided to fully divest from coal, oil, and gas companies, um, having never had coal or major oil, because after a seven-year campaign working on fracking, we could only get the companies to make small changes. And then at the end of the day, they're fracking companies. And what they're doing is inherently environmentally dangerous. Um, an individual firm or person is more of a value alignment if they divest, that's not going to move the company. And so I would characterize it as where are you being most effective? Where's the value add for your shareholder advocacy time? And it's very hard to point to any concrete or as many concrete changes with the oil and gas companies. So what you're saying is that where the business model of the company itself is really embedded to the behavior you want to change, you really need regulation. But where there's some more flexibility and perhaps where there's a good business case uh, to transform the company over time, investors can actually provide a really powerful catalytic force to get companies to move in that direction faster than they otherwise would. Absolutely. To us, Doing advocacy with fossil fuel companies is like doing advocacy with Starbucks to get them to stop serving coffee. We and others have worked with Starbucks on reducing antibiotics in their chicken supply and reducing plastics and protecting rainforests from deforestation, from palm oil. 
but we would be unsuccessful in getting them to stop serving coffee. So trying to change a company's core business with shareholder advocacy is just, it's not set up to succeed. That's where regulation and um, legislation here in the U.S. can make the difference. So, Christoph, the shareholder activist agenda is quite an American, a U.S. phenomenon. Can you tell us a little bit more about the cultural differences and what are the practices that are happening more in uh, in Europe and Japan and other markets? Um, as, as you actually say, like the history in, in the U.S., it's it uh, dates a lot uh, longer back. Um, I did some research and then wrote a book chapter. So we already see the labor unions after World War II actually using methods that that we would call shared activism. But the Swiss and the European approach is um, is and has been um, a lot more consensus building and long term collaboration together with the companies. Partly also. Um, because you have higher thresholds for filing uh, shareholder resolutions, which can be as high as 10% of, of equity. What's been your uh, perception of EU initiatives on sustainable investing? I think we have hit a critical point now um, where the EU, um, but also a lot of other countries, are giving shareholders um, the right and responsibility to act as a good steward. And um, what we, for example, saw in Switzerland after the MINDA initiative in, in 2013. So in 2014, a lot of companies were really open to talk about pay, to talk about compensation um, of, their, of their board members or their executives. So we, we, we see a positive effect of these um, uh, shareholder rights regulations. And Christoph, you did a PhD on shareholder engagement. Uh, what was your key thesis and finding? Yes, I did indeed. Um, it, it, one of the key findings was really the importance of cultural differences in the tools that you use for your engagement. And um, not, not surprising, I would say trust is, plays a very key role there. And, and trust is won and lost in different societies and different cultures in different ways. Um, and I think that that links maybe to the perception of activism, for example, in Japan, um, that more confrontational tools as a first step would um, basically erode this trust and make it very difficult for you to actually um, achieve a successful engagement outcome. Trust is built by that expectation of uh, benevolence. So let's talk about some of the themes that where we believe investors can really make an impact on our companies. Uh, so turning to you, Mia, can you give us any examples of areas within ocean health where you think engaging with companies has or, or can make a big difference? Sure, absolutely. Um, and you know, to tie it into your question on you know regulation versus engagement. I'll also say um, that it can be a question of time frame, too. For example, you know, we have been working on oceans, and in that context, we've been working with um, shipping companies, right? One of which is um, a Japanese shipping company, Nippon Nusen Kaisha, uh, which is sort of like the Japanese Maersk, if you will, major global company. Um, and if, if I had to wait for the International Maritime Organization to regulate um, emissions on, on um, shipping, I would be waiting forever. And so with this one particular company, 
Um, we've had a number of um, in-depth conversations, um, one of which was um, inviting them to sort of clean up the way they do shipbreaking and, you know, people are benefiting. And so if you save even one life um, from, um, from engaging and, you know, or, or 1,000, you know, gallons of oil from being <laughs> released right into the ocean, then I think it's better than waiting around for regulation. And so that, that's what we've done with this company, which then after engaging with us, what, what they said was, you know, look, we've always intended to do these things, but we didn't realize that investors were watching. And now that we know that investors are watching, we bumped it up on our priority list. And since you got the ball rolling and got us thinking on that, then we decided to commit to net zero emissions by 2050, which we hadn't done before, and which is way ahead of where the International Maritime Organization is mandating um, uh, companies take action at this time. We're actually observing something very similar that, and um, if I may add, what, what you can also do as investors, you can empower internal change makers. We are seeing it, for example, with biodiversity and um, biodiversity conversations that we are having with, um, with, with, with tech companies who say, we had no idea you're interested. We were in the middle of a negotiation last month and the sustainability officer said, having you file the shareholder resolution gives me more leverage with the executives because now there is this other threat to them and they don't want to see this printed. Mia, um, you know, a lot of the students on campus are demanding that their university endowments divest from fossil fuels. What is the role of divestment versus engagement as, uh, as a strategy for actually getting change? If you take all the companies generating uh, excessive emissions, fossil fuel companies out of your portfolio, it doesn't mean that you're not using the products and services that those fossil fuels uh, generate. It just means that they're not in your portfolio. Uh, so we've committed to have you know, net zero emissions across a number of our strategies by 2050. But the way that we're going to get there isn't just simply by taking the high emitters out of the strategy. It's by, um, by working with those companies to encourage them to you know, set targets and you know, make investments um, that will reduce their footprint and, and make real changes to their business. So Leslie, what can companies do to anticipate or prepare for activist campaigns or, or avoid them altogether? I think they should pay attention to what investors are saying and taking it to heart. And they should also at least track or potentially meet with the NGOs who are targeting them. Um, there are many companies that eventually have agreed to changes in their policy or practices that could have avoided a lot of executive time and negative publicity if they had truly listened and moved more quickly. So let's talk about emerging themes. You know, we've, we've seen a lot on climate. We've seen quite a bit on diversity and inclusion. Uh, Leslie, what are the upcoming themes that you are seeing in the shareholder engagement dialogue? I would echo what Christoph said around biodiversity. Um, it seems to have gotten a lot of traction in Europe, and I'm really excited about it here in the U.S. because we've been working on it from the angle of agricultural commodities and destruction of tropical rainforests. I think plastics is going to continue to increase. There still are not that many investors engaged in it 
compared to other issues, but the record of wins and progress is hopefully inspiring others to become involved. I also think probably there are more governance issues because that has a direct impact on just the overall health of a corporation. So Mia, what do you see as upcoming themes? Biodiversity emerging, um, plastics emerging, and I would say that With the changes in um, the workforce dynamics, the great walkout, if you will, um, the pressure that employers are facing um, to to retain uh, workers, I think we're going to see a lot more attention to to worker rights uh, in this sort of upcoming phase. Um, And we we have been um, engaging Amazon for quite a long time on improved health and safety of their workers. And um, just two weeks ago, they finally published for the very first time um, the uh, recordable injury rate uh, and the lost time rate of, uh, of their workforce, which uh, is, is high, but has come down and improved dramatically um, from 2019 to 2020. And I think it's an example of these dialogues working. I'm sure there have been many other investors talking with them about the same thing. But um, but I do think that will be another theme that will um, that that will gain more attention in, in the current environment. And Christoph, what themes are you seeing emerging? I think um, yes, one one of the biggest themes emerging is is biodiversity. I think without a doubt, biodiversity is interconnected with climate change, and climate change is interconnected with biodiversity. And I think this problem of interconnectedness um, is 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 what will be emerging. So if you look at the SDGs, for example, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, um, we, we, we need to realize that we cannot address one or two or three out of these 17s. So we, we need to address all 17 in order to achieve any of them because they are so interconnected. That wraps up today's podcast. And I'd like to thank Mia, Leslie, Christoph, and James for a fascinating discussion. What we've seen with real case studies, backed by real figures and evidence, is that these techniques can make a positive impact on sustainability and returns. Please join us for our next podcast, where we'll discuss the role of technology in the agriculture sector. But in the meantime, hit that follow button on Apple or Spotify and check in with us every month on Lasting Values, the sustainability podcast by Credit Suisse. Should a bank clean up the ocean? We engage with companies creating ocean impact and preventing plastic pollution practices. We're on it. The information provided herein constitutes general marketing material. It is not investment advice, nor otherwise based on a consideration of the personal circumstances of the addressee, nor is it a result of objective or independent research. The information provided herein is not legally binding, and it does not constitute an offer or invitation to enter into any type of financial transaction. The information provided herein was produced by a member of Credit Suisse Group AG and or its affiliates, hereafter CS, with the greatest of care and to the best of its knowledge and belief. The information and views expressed herein 
are those of CS at the time of writing and are subject to change at any time without notice. They are derived from sources believed to be truthful and reliable. CS provides no guarantee with regard to the completeness and accuracy of the information and, where legally possible, does not accept liability for any direct, indirect, incidental, specific or consequential losses that might arise from making use of the information. If nothing is indicated to the contrary, all figures are unaudited. The information provided herein is solely for information purposes and the exclusive use of the recipient and is not intended and should not be construed as legal, accounting, tax nor financial advice provided by CS. If this material is issued and distributed in the US, it is by CSSU, a member of NYSE, FINRA, SIPC and the NFA, and CSSU accepts responsibility for its contents. Clients should contact their sales representative and execute transactions through a Credit Suisse subsidiary or affiliate in their home jurisdiction, unless governing law permits otherwise. This material is intended for institutional investors only, not for retail distribution. It may not be reproduced, neither in part nor in full, without the prior written permission of CS. Important information for investors in Germany. The information and views expressed herein are those of CS at the time of writing and are subject to change at any time without notice. They are derived from sources believed to be reliable. CS provides no guarantee with regard to the content and completeness of the information. If nothing is indicated to the contrary, all figures are unaudited. The information provided herein is for the exclusive use of the recipient. Copyright 2021 Credit Suisse Group AG and or its affiliates. All rights reserved.